so John 5, and we've been in John 5 for three weeks. This is the third week. You may remember the context is a healing of a paralyzed man who's waiting by a pool to be healed. And Jesus comes up to him and he says, do you want to be made well? An odd question to ask somebody who obviously needs to be made well. Jesus heals the man, and this puts him into conflict with the religious leaders. Because as our text says today, chapter 518, which is what we looked at last week, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. That's the context of our passage today. Last week we looked at how Jesus, rather than disabuse them of the notion that he's claiming to be God, he actually claims to be equal and one with the Father. Here's where we pick up our text. John 5, verse 30. I could do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Do you all know what this uh, fancy word apologetics is? is or means. Have you heard of apologetics? It's a discipline within Christianity about how we defend the faith. 
usually using rational argumentation or evidences or sometimes we presuppose things like scripture and the eternal God that wrote it. It's a way for Christians to not only share their faith, but as Peter says, always be prepared to give a defense or an answer for the hope that lies within you. And then he goes on, but only do so with gentleness and respect. And that's so hard. Apologetics. I remember once I was reading a, a, a book on apologetics, and somebody had asked, well, what are you reading? And I said, well, it's a book on apologetics. And they said, is it, it's a book about saying you're sorry? I said, no, that, that book probably should be written. But it's a book about reasons and defenses and evidences for the Christian faith that we hold so dear. Do you like apologetics? As a former engineer, I, I loved apologetics. I, I loved that there were reasons and logic behind what we believe that we say we believe. And I used to spend, I mean, 20 years ago, I used to spend late hours of the night, it was before social media, really. Yeah, it was, definitely. On discussion boards and forums. I don't know if those things even exist anymore. And I would debate in the religion forum or the Christianity forum, Christianity. It's a good thing to do to... Talk to people in those kinds of contexts so you can understand what they really believe so that we're not just arguing at somebody, but we can address their concerns or their beliefs. And what I found in that after doing that for a couple of years, I'm not sure I convinced anybody of anything. People have their minds made up, particularly people who want to debate these things. Does that discourage you? Does it discourage you when you want to give people the hope, the only hope they can really have, and they just don't want to receive it? They don't receive it. And sometimes that makes you discouraged because you think maybe if you had better words, better information to share with them, the right thing to say. We're going to see today in our text that unbelief, so the word believe is used seven times in John 5 and four, five times in our text. I bolded some of them. I missed some. But always in the negative, you do not believe. We're going to see that belief and unbelief are not based on information. It's not a lack of information why people don't believe. Unbelief is an ethical issue. It's an issue of our hearts. It's an issue of a divided heart often. A heart that wants to serve or receive glory from people rather than from God himself. We're going to actually see how information and knowing the Bible is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. And Christian, that applies to us too. It's a text that could sound discouraging, but rightly understood, it's super encouraging because we recognize that our own coming to faith, if we're in Christ, was nothing to do with us. And it also helps us to realize that when we are mocked, and ridiculed, as the scripture said, when we're called foolish for our so-called arguments or defenses of the faith, that we don't need their approval because we have the, the approval of the Father himself because Jesus has given us the right to be called children of God. So that's what we're going to see in our text. I have it outlined for you there in three Three parts, judging the judge, witnessing the witnesses, and just and justifier. 
So judgment and judging. It's just really a part of the human condition. We are judging all the time. Right now you're judging me. Do I like this sermon or do I not like this sermon? Maybe you're judging others. If they only knew about her. If they only knew about him. Judging. What is judgment really about? In the Bible, just and justice is related to the word righteousness. Sometimes they're used interchangeably. And judging is about righteousness. And human beings are self-righteous, self-justifying. We proclaim why we are righteous and others are not. We see this as, as, as people come to Jesus. I mean, here they're judging the judge. Jesus Christ is the judge of the world, and they're judging him. In John 8, in a similar conversation, they said, we have Abraham as our father. Who are you? Who's your father? He's already said his father's the father. But that's self-justification. We have Abraham. We know where we came from. In two stories in the Gospels, when, when somebody comes to Jesus and they say, what must we do to inherit eternal life? Or what's the greatest commandment? And you may think of those stories. Jesus always answers them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And every time they answer him in such a way to self-justify. So one man says, seeking to justify himself, he says, well, who is my neighbor? Another man says, I have done all those things since I was born. Or you may think of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, both praying to God, the, Pharise uh, the tax collector with his head bowed low, be merciful to me, God, a sinner, and the Pharisee with his head raised high. Thank you, I'm not like him. Judging that man and then self-justifying. I tithe, I obey, I do this, and I do that. Judging. The irony, as I said, is they are judging the judge himself. Now, I have a quote in your bulletin in the front from C.S. Lewis in a collection of his essays called God in the Dock. Do you know what the dock is in British jurisprudence? It's the place where the accused stands. It's where the defendant is. The one who was on trial. So C.S. Lewis writes this essay, the, the bottom paragraph on that if you have it. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, man is the judge, and God is in the dock. He's the one being judged. He, man, is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench, the seat of judgment, and God is in the dock being judged. And that's what people do, particularly modern people. We judge God and we size him up, not by his standard found here, but by the standard we want him to hold. And Jesus in our text today stands against that. And he says, you may have heard it, not that I need man to testify about me. Not that I receive glory from man, 
Verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Verse uh, 41, I do not receive glory from people. What's he saying there? I don't need your glory and I don't need your testimony. And he's also speaking in a Jewish context, which says that for testimony to be valid, it needs to be validated by two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy says that multiple times. That by one witness, somebody couldn't be convicted. It had to be on the, the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so what does Christ give us in our bulletin? And that's how I break it up. He gives us anywhere from three to five witnesses to, what he, to who he is. I say anywhere from three to five because theologians are, they, it's interesting reading the commentaries on this, but like, you notice I didn't include Moses as one of the witnesses, but later down it says Moses is one of the witnesses. So if I included Moses, that would be five, but of course Moses wrote the scriptures. The scriptures are already a witness. But the truth is, the father is listed as a witness, but it's all the father's testimony. John the Baptist, who's listed as a witness, is, comes from the father. The works that Jesus does, he's already said in that chapter, are the works the Father has given him to do, and the scriptures are the words of God, the Father. So there is a sense that all the witnesses are from God, but Christ lists the Father separately. So we're going to go through the four witnesses. You see them in your bulletin. Verse 33, he talks about John the Baptist. Verse 36, the works that he's doing. Verse 37, the Father himself. And verse 39, the scriptures. Christ is building a case for who he is. You don't believe him, believe these other things. So John the Baptist. John the Baptist, you may remember, is a big, important character in John's gospel. He's a different John. But he's right there in, in John chapter 1, as a matter of fact. Verse, chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And John's gospel references John the Baptist multiple times about pointing to Jesus. He's the one who says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Pharisees come to John the Baptist and, and try to understand, are you the one? Are you the prophet? The, he, John the Baptist is a prophet, but he's not the prophet. And he says, no. But one is coming that I was, I'm not even able to unloose the, his sandals. He's the one. When people ask John the Baptist who, who Jesus is, or when, he says, he's, he's the one I came to point to. He must increase and I must decrease. So John is not the Messiah. So our text says, you sent to John, and he, was born, he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Now, it's fascinating why Jesus is using John, but I think it's because the Pharisees have no argument against John. Matter of fact, Jesus in, in Matthew's gospel tries to trick the Pharisees. When the Pharisees are, are questioning Christ about, uh, or they're, they're about his authority, Jesus says, I'll ask you a question, and if you can answer it, I'll answer you. Whose baptism, where did John get the baptism from? Was it from himself or from God? 
The Pharisees say to themselves, if we say it's from God, he's going to say, well, then why didn't you believe him? Because he said, I'm the Messiah. But if we say from man, all the people are going to stone us because they value John as a prophet and we have nothing against John. And so what's the point? The point is, John the Baptist is a reliable witness. They can't refute him. He's above reproach. And they have nothing to say against him. Now, the reason I go there is because I often think that's our role. I've told you this before. Like, as John the Baptist says, I must decrease and Christ must increase. And John the Baptist is beyond reproach, pointing to Christ, that's the kind of witnesses we're called to be. And when people from the outside look at our lives, they should be able to say, in our Christian state, nothing against us. That's not perfection. I'm not claiming perfection. But we see that in the standards of officers for the church, right? Beyond reproach. Knows how to manage their money. Knows how to manage their home has a good reputation because it increases their witness to the one. It doesn't convince people, but it makes them a witness that they should listen to. Of course, they don't take John's words as serious. They, Jesus says then, well, let's go to the works. The testimony that I have is greater than what John says, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So you see, John the writer gives you a witness and then says they bore witness. And so this is called corroborating evidence, right? You have eyewitness testimony. John the Baptist says, I heard the Father tell me that Jesus is the Son of God. And now Jesus is doing works that only God can do. Corroborating evidence. Jesus uses this line of logic a lot in his word. In John chapter 9, 32, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That's the testimony of somebody he heals. Or Mark 2, 12, They were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Now, as they look at Jesus and the works that he does, and they say, nobody can do works like this, it reminds Jewish people of Deuteronomy 3, where it says, what God is there in heaven or earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours, God? And that's what Jesus is doing. He's doing things that a human can't do, that only God can do. Matthew 13, he went to his hometown, and they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And that's why in John 10, Jesus says, I told you, and you do not believe. By the way, sidebar, John's gospel keeps having the same conversation over and over and over. So if you, if you think, like, George, why do you keep repeating yourself every sermon? Because this same dialogue happens in chapter 8, in chapter 10, in chapter 12, and later. They don't believe Jesus, uh, it's almost as if Jesus says that same thing. I told you already, and you do not believe. So it says, I told you. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. 
Verse 37 in chapter 10. If I am not doing the works of my Father, do not believe. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. John 14. Believe on the account of the works themselves. That's why I said there's just this repetition. You get the point that John wants us to get. Jesus wants faith, because that's the word belief. Wants us to believe. What works? What works did Jesus do? Now we said the word signs are important in John's gospel, right? He, these, John's gospel is all about eyewitness testimony to signs. He says, and we were witnesses to these things, and many more signs were done that can be written. But these are written that you may believe, and in believing have life in his name. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and believe has life in his name. We said signs point to something. They signify something. They're not a miracle for the sake of a miracle. There's meaning to the sign. Do you understand the signs? What are, what are the signs? We, we know about healing, of course. And when Jesus heals people, what is he showing? Complete sovereignty and authority over the laws of biology. When he turns water into wine, he is communicating, he has complete sovereignty and authority over the laws of chemistry. When he walks on water, he's showing he has complete authority over the laws of physics. When he calms a storm by the word of his power, he's showing he has authority over the natural world. When he casts out demons, he has authority over the supernatural world. When he heals people, he's also showing that he has authority to forgive sins. And when he forgives sins, he's showing that he has the authority of judgment. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, he has the authority over death. And when he raises himself from the dead, he has the authority not only over life, but to give life. The signs communicate he's God. But Jesus doesn't rest on the testimony of John the Baptist. He doesn't rest on the signs and the works that he's doing, although the works should say it all. He says, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, and his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. It's three indictments. I, I, may we never have that said about us. For you do not believe the one whom he sent. Now, as I said, the Father is the source of all the evidence that Christ is our... He is the source of all the witnesses. He sent John the Baptist. The works Jesus are doing are the Father's works. John, Jesus has already said that. He's doing it in the power of the Spirit. Everything is, is within the Trinity. The Scriptures are even the Father's Scriptures. The Father communicates. The communicated Word is Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit inspired people to write it. The Trinity. We talked about this last week. It's amazing. So everything is the Father's works, but Jesus is listing the Father even as, as a separate witness. The Father has borne witness. How's the Father borne witness to Christ outside of the things we've already said? Well, some theologians say, well, this must be when the voice came from, from the heavens. It says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And John the Baptist heard that, and we don't know what the people heard, thunder or something. Or at the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The father has borne witness. But I think there's something more to this. I think Christ is saying he knows who he is. He doesn't need the testimony of men. He's already said that. He doesn't need the glory of men. He knows 
who he is. He knows who he came from. And that's the attitude we need, Christian. We know who we are in Christ. People can reject the word. They're, I mean, they're, look, look. If Christ couldn't convince people, or I can't even say couldn't. If Christ didn't convince people with his works and words, why do we think we can? We're just called to be faithful like John the Baptist, to point to Christ, to live lives holy unto the Lord, to call people to repentant faith. Jesus knows who he is, and they are rejecting him. Not that the testimony I receive is from man. I don't need man's testimony, but here's the beauty. But I say these things so that you may be saved, because the Spirit will awaken those who the Word is implanted in their hearts to see. The problem is these are people pleasers, and we saw this later. I don't receive glory from men. How can you receive me when you receive the glory from men, from one another, and do not seek the glory that comes from God? And we read that again later in John's Gospel. So the repetition is constant. It says many, they did not believe, but many of the religious leaders actually did believe, it says, but for fear of the Jews, they didn't follow him openly because they cared more about the glory that comes from man than the glory that comes from God. Which judge do you care about? In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, don't uh, worry about him who can kill, destroy the body, but not the soul. Worry about the judge of the earth who can destroy body and soul. But he's your loving father. Don't be anxious for anything. He feeds the birds. Is he not going to feed you? But respect his judgment and his word and his authority and seek his glory. Not the glory from men. And so that's the Father telling the Son who He is. Romans 8 says the Spirit bears witness with our spirit, what? That we are children of God. And people can call you fools and foolish, and we can rest on what the Bible says on who the real fool is. He who says in their heart there is no God. That's what it says. The fourth witness is the scriptures. Jesus is going for the juggler on this one. Because they can discount John the Baptist, and they can somehow explain away the works. And they don't know what the Father said. But the scriptures, this is what they prided themselves on. He says that later about Moses, right? You say you follow Moses. You say you know the word. You say that's what you're about. And those are from God. And yet he says back in that father section, his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not believe the word. You don't have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. And the scriptures are all pointing to Christ. This is the thing about Jesus. We want relationship. We, we, what, what are the deepest longings of the human heart? You've heard it said. We want to know and be known. We want to know truth and reality, and we want to be fully known. Fully known, truly known and fully loved, right? But the creator of the universe is out there. He's distant. He's transcendent. In Islam, you can't even really communicate to him. You pray toward him, but he has no response back except judgment, and there's no relationship. In Buddhism, there's no person. Who's a God? 
in the person of Jesus Christ, you see the Father. That's what Jesus says. So go back to the Exodus, Exodus 33. Moses, who's tired and beleaguered and wandering through the wilderness, and he's got these stubborn people, stubborn, self-righteous people, and what is he, he's just up on the mountain with God. He just wants to, he says, show me your glory. Fast forward to John's gospel. Philip, I think. Philip or Nathaniel. I'll say Philip. Says to Jesus, show us the Father. Come on. Jesus says, have you been with me so long? How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you know if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? That's what he says. You say, what do you mean? Well, Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The works that Jesus does are the Father's works. The words that Jesus speaks are the Father's words. They don't have that dwelling in them, even though they have their version of the Scriptures. It's worthless. Because to have the Scriptures without having Christ is worthless. And to claim faith in God without faith in Christ is worthless. It's all about Christ. And when Christ points to the Scriptures... That's what he's pointing to. And so what do you think of when he says, like, the Scriptures speak about Jesus Christ? Well, it's very easy to think of the prophecies, right? We call them the Messianic prophecies, prophecies of the Messiah. The Messiah is the one who's going to come and fix the, all the problems and rule in righteousness and be king of the earth, and there'll be peace and shalom. It says peace. So Genesis 3, one will come from your seed who will crush the head of the serpent, or you think of the promise to Abraham to make him a family and a tribe and a nation that will be more than the sands of the sea or the, the sands of the shore or the stars in the sky. Or the promise to David of a Messiah who will come, a, a, a king who will come from his line, who will rule in righteousness and justice forevermore. You could think of those prophecies directly about Jesus that are fulfilled. But Luke 24 says this. And other places you could go to. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. He's, he's resurrected, but they don't know. They, they think he's still dead, these disciples. And he's talking to them, and, and they're confused. And he always, you know, Jesus always says, well, how can you not know these things, you know? And, 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 he, and he says, beginning with Moses he, and the prophets, he opened all the writings, the scriptures, to them. And they still kind of didn't get it until he broke the bread in front of them. And maybe they saw the scars in his hands, or the open wounds. And then he vanishes from their sight. And they say, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures? The author of the scriptures opened them to, to them. That's what heaven's going to be, folks. We're going to know things in here that we, we could never imagine. But, but what, so he says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, all the things concerning him. So it's not just messianic prophecies. It's all about Christ. It all points to Christ. The Joseph story points to Christ. He's betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, which is like going down into a grave, sold into slavery for silver. Christ was too, by the way, so sold to his death. He's thrown in a prison and languishes there, and then he comes out of the prison like you're coming out of a tomb, raises to the right hand of the most powerful ruler on the earth, and saves humanity. And you could do that with so many stories. The stories in the Bible point to Christ. The description of the temple points to Christ. 
There's a lampstand. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. There's a table with bread. I am the bread of life. The priesthood, the sacrifices. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Point to Christ. The third day resurrection in the Old Testament points to Christ. You say, where's the third day resurrection in the Old Testament? Two times in the New Testament it says the Messiah would rise from the dead on the third day. First Corinthians and in the book of Acts. Didn't you know that the Messiah would rise from the dead on the third day? The scriptures say it. He said, where in the scriptures? One place Jesus points to is Jonah. So there's symbolism and typology, we call it. Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for the fish for three days, so must the Son of Man be in the earth for three days, and then he comes out alive. Do you know 40 times that pattern happens in the Old Testament? Never says that's a resurrection, but the New Testament expects you to see it as one. Another example, Esther. Remember, there's a judgment pronounced on the Jews. All the Jews are going to die. So that's death. Esther says, okay, I'm going to pray for three days and, on the th- and get everybody to pray. And on the third day, she goes and secures salvation for the Jews. It's a third day of hope. Third day. It all points to Jesus. He's the new Adam and the true Israel. He's a greater prophet than Moses, a wiser man than Solomon, a perfect king unlike David. He's a better father of the faith than Abraham, a better deliverer than Joseph. And the New Testament tells you those things. That's not George making it up. It's all about Christ. All of it. Amen. Notice, they knew the scriptures. He says, you search the scriptures. Some people think that's a command. Jesus saying, search the scriptures and find me. I think it's Jesus' indictment. You search the scriptures. You're looking in the scriptures and you don't see me. And that's why you don't see the Father, you don't hear the Father, and his word's not abiding in you because you're not receiving me because it's all about me. And what does that say? Our knowledge of scripture doesn't save us. And by the way, your false interpretation of Scripture, you will be held accountable to. You can't claim ignorance. Oh, I just missed it. Sorry. If we reject Christ, we reject God. And there's judgment for that. And that's why Jesus says, Moses accuses you. I don't need to, when he says, I don't judge you, Moses will be your accuser. He's not saying he's not the judge. He's simply saying, All you got to do is read Moses. The word of God convicts. We know that. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing between bone and marrow. It gets in there. It finds the place where unbelief is. I said at the beginning of the sermon, this text is very helpful in understanding apologetics and the power of apologetics because they do not believe. And the best logician, logics person in the world, the Logos himself is explaining to them who he is and they want to kill him. I remember I was talking to uh, an atheist who worked for me. At the time I was 30 years old, he was 50 years old, computer programmer. And we would go back and forth because he was like, I mean, he was an atheist by religion almost. 
and very arrogant. Um, not that atheists have to be arrogant, but he, he definitely was. And he just basically said, you're foolish to believe in God or Christianity. And, and, he, and I said, well, what, what do you need to believe? What would make you believe? And he had to think about it. And he said, if God came to me himself in the flesh and did miracles for me. And I said, well, that's what the Bible said happened. Yeah, but he didn't do it for me. I said, so you think God should go to right now 7 billion people on the planet and do that? Or is, is God powerful enough to do that once and then use that testimony to convince you? And I said, and you know what? If God stood before you and did a miracle for you that you asked him for, you still probably wouldn't believe. How do I know that? Because the gospels are full of it. These people just saw him raise a man who was paralyzed and they don't believe you're into apologetics, you'll, you'll know, you'll, might recognize he used classical apologetics, which is reason and logic in this. He used evidentialism, which means looking at the scriptures for fulfilled prophecy, but also the evidences of the signs themselves. He's also presuppositionalist. The scriptures say, I'm God, so I'm God. Well, how do we know the scriptures are true? God says, I'm, I'm one with the Father. That's all the testimony I need. But none of that convinces them because, as I said, our problem is not informational. It's ethical. You, uh, verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse. You do not believe. Refusing is an act of the will, right? It's a choice you're making. I refuse it. Now, that sounds harsh, but that's the judgment. They're judging the judge. They're, reject, they, they're standing on the scriptures and rejecting the one who made the scriptures. They've placed themselves in the seat of judging and the judge, and they placed Jesus Christ, who's God, as a defendant, and the amazing thing is that Jesus assumes that role. He willingly steps into the place of the accused. This is what he does. And by the way, the scriptures point to this too, because what do we know about the rock that was struck in the wilderness, Paul writes, and the rock that was struck was Christ, right? That story is a story of judging God. God delivers them out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and what do they do? They're grumbling. They're judging God and judging Moses. And Moses says, help me, they're going to kill us. They're going to kill me. And God says, okay, assemble the people. And then he says, and I will stand before them. Our ears don't even understand that. But back then they knew the king doesn't stand before anybody. People stand before the king. And God says, I will stand before them. I will stand in the dock. I will be judged. And then he says, take that rod and strike where I'm standing. And from that judgment, water will flow. It's a picture of what Christ does for us, that the creator of the universe comes and is judged not just by humanity, but by God himself for every thought, word, and deed that any of us who are in Christ have ever done. And then we realized that on our own, we would never choose him because we are rebels who refuse his grace. 
But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he gives us eyes to see and ears to hear, which is what the miracles are pointing to, and soft hearts to implant his word so that it says here, as we would have life. It's amazing. All of us are rebels. The Bible says none of us can boast. None of us can stand in our self-righteousness. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but Jesus Christ is both judge and justifier, both just and justifier. Romans 3. I'm going to read a good section of Romans 3 if people like to get their Bibles. 3.19. Romans 3.10, quoting from the Old Testament. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who? No one. This represents all of us. So everyone. Because no one is righteous, no, not one. Now we know that whatever the law speaks... It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You think you can judge the judge, but in the last day, this will judge you. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Remember the connection between being justified and judgment. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But... I know so many of us love the word but. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith, belief, do you believe in Jesus Christ for all who believe? There's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace, the free gift of it, as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood a satisfaction, a sacrifice on our behalf to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God the judge justifies us. For I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. For in it, the righteousness or justice of God is revealed from faith for faith. For the just shall live by faith. You get Christ's righteousness. That's why he says, I count it all as rubbish. Rejecting the rights to my own that I might receive the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ, Paul says. We don't stand in judgment before God. We stand before God as our judge and then the judge makes us his son. And his daughter, he says, call me father. That's the gospel. How do you receive that? Not by information. Information's important. We talked about faith having the three components. Knowledge, assent, and trust. You need the knowledge. Very limited knowledge. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He paid the price for my sins. Faith then 
pursues that, receives that, changes our life because that's how sanctification works. We could be witnesses like John the Baptist. We could say, I'm not who I was. That's a witness to your Savior. If you have things in your past and the Lord has changed you and you're a new creation in Christ, the world may judge you, but you know that your Father in heaven, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you know they may call you foolish for believing you're a new creation, a new person, that your past is actually in your past. Actually, it's not even in your past. It's like it's gone. But you know that your Father in heaven loves you. And you don't need the testimony of men. This should be hope for the Christian. And for the non-Christian, what is stopping you today from receiving Jesus Christ by faith as who he, he is, who he says he is? Savior, Lord, and King. There is judgment, and you can't claim on the last day, I didn't know. You can't. Romans 1 says we are without excuse. So I pray you would have faith. And Christian, I pray we would increase in our, in our faith. And we can only do that by faith, receiving grace, calling upon the Holy Spirit for that. Let's do that. Let's pray.